All right, ladies and gentlemen out there watching, the millions of you, thanks for joining us. I am here with the infamous Larry O, Larry Osborne down in San Diego. How's it, how's it going down there? Are you, are you uh, locked down, sir? Oh, yes. Uh, Emperor Newsom has us locked down big time. Right now, Emperor Newsom is that like a, that's a little slam? I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. Oh, oh, it just must have come out. <laughs> <laughs> so, what are the? You know, we're in Canada, obviously, so the rules are obviously a little bit different everywhere you go. But what, what are your rules right now? Are you allowed at restaurants or? What? Oh no, restaurants neither inside, outside. Pretty much everything's locked down. Uh, and the the theory is, even though you know some of these things only have a transmission rate of one point five percent or whatever. It's all about ICU beds. Yes. And as they get very full, they go, well, every 1% really matters. Uh, and of course, the downside is uh, pastorally, all the people we know who have jobs that work in those industries uh, that are, are, are dying uh, left and right financially and emotionally. Of course. So of course. That's, that's been a tough battle. I'm glad I'm able to sit back here and just gripe and complain and critique. I'm not having to make those decisions. I'm sure yeah. they're not easy. Those are big decisions, and uh, yeah, obviously it's a complicated issue. I mean, you have uh, you have people saying, "Look, the um, you know the death rate is only you know whatever uh, to to a certain age, and there's only a certain amount of people outside of old age homes that die, and so on and so forth." But if you just said, and those are legitimate things, and those are very important questions to ask when the government's doing something unprecedented and locking us all in our houses, and people are having mental health problems and suicide rates and depression and marriages and alcoholism, all this stuff going through the roof. Those are legitimate questions to ask. Um, but I think, you know, we can't isolate those things either and just say, well, look, only X amount of people die. It's because of what you've just said, the hospitals could tip uh, if we're not careful with this thing. And I think that argument to me seems to make sense that we got to at least do our part to try to make sure the hospitals don't tip. Is that, yeah, and, and what, what's happening here, down here, too, is, uh, you know, uh, everyone's made in the image of God. Uh, we might get pretty marred up, but uh, we understand we're all in the image of God. There's no such thing in his eyes of little people. Right. Uh, and, and so what you've got is, uh, you know, we have a significant homeless issue here. Uh, and so I had somebody in the hospital just the other day, uh, two days ago, and uh, the hospital was crowded out, but the beds were actually mostly a mental ward, uh, which we don't have anymore. You know, uh, mental illness is not criminalized right. uh, and, and, and homeless. So uh, it wasn't even all COVID, uh, but still at the end of the day, if there's not a bed, there's not a bed. That's right. why I said it's such a difficult thing. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's so unprecedented and so large. I think it's, it's really hard for all of us that are called to share the gospel to make sure we keep remembering what is most important in this thing. Yeah, uh, 100%. Okay, so you became uh, famous, I mean, uh, for, well, a lot of things throughout your, your life. But it, recently, you did a video on YouTube that's been watched many, many times, hundreds of millions, maybe, who knows? <laughs> check the facts. Don't fact check this, uh, this video, folks. Uh, and you were talking about, you know, gathering physically in churches and uh, kind of your, your, your thinking on to gather, to not gather. It was, it was right in the middle. Well, tell us a bit of the story, but when, when did you shoot it and, and what is your basic message in that video? Because people are, people are loving it. Well, it was, it was right at the beginning and it was uh, titled Don't Reopen Until. Uh, so it was probably shot late March, very early April. Uh, when everybody was realized, oh, it's not three weeks, it's going to be maybe a month or two, they thought. Uh, and uh, right. what I felt like is uh, people weren't really thinking through uh, some of the consequences. They just like, let's reopen. And right. so uh, I, I said, before you do that, you need to think through quality. For instance, if you reopen with a really bad experience, that's like a restaurant rushing to reopen and the food's really bad. Uh, if it's better online, keep it online. Uh, I also talked about kids programs, uh, that uh, uh, reopening where the kids are in the room changes the dynamic of everything, except for in a small church that actually does that right. uh, on a regular basis. And uh, it's very hard to reach families, especially new ones, if the kids come and it's a socially distanced, I hate this, uh, I'm in tears, I don't wanna be here, 
mom and dad won't be back. And if they're right. new folks uh, looking for Jesus, they certainly won't be back uh, as well. And right. then the concern about singing being something that clearly spreads uh, the vapor more than anything else. And, and at the beginning, people weren't uh, thinking about those things. Um, right. What I would add to it now, if I could redo it, um, would be an exhortation to not reopen, but instead to add an option. I think that's been the biggest thing with the churches I work with, both from yeah. just speaking on a, something like this to client churches I, I work with, um, that when you use the word reopening, you're sending a message subliminally. You're not intending to, but unintended message subliminally to everybody who doesn't come, that you're not really committed or you're feel, fearful or whatever. Right. You also get caught in the whole political thing. Uh, up in Canada, you had that, and we that of, uh, you know, you're standing up for your, quote, rights. Uh, right. And right. so it, what you do, and we've worked hard to do this at, at North Coast. Chris Brown, our current lead pastor, has done a great job with it. Uh, and that is, folks, it's an option. It's an option. We, right. we plan to reopen outdoors January 10th. We still have not opened uh, except for some Sunday night gatherings for communion and things like that. Just the concept of reopening outdoors in January is not a sentence that is applicable to myself, unfortunately. Or pretty much all of Canada, right? <laughs> oh, brother. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Not. I mean, I'm not... Uh, to the point is whether it's indoors, outdoors, whatever, we are not going to call it a reopening. We're saying we're adding an option. Uh, for yep. those of you who just desperately miss being together, it's going to be socially distanced. We're going to do all this stuff. Yeah. Uh, but we continue to have our watch parties. We continue to have our online. We continue to have all of the yep. other things. And well, uh, that, that just takes away almost instantly uh, all of the pushback uh, yep. as people try to turn this political. Yeah, and we're fighting to do our best to reopen, but a lot of our stuff is rental, so uh, it's it's we we don't even have the option right now. That's uh, to that's be able true to, for some of know. our campuses as well. Yeah. So okay, so uh, how are you doing during the lockdown, though? You you guys you guys okay? You and Nancy doing good? Yeah, I mean, I I, I look at this as a time where marriage get better or worse. Uh, a bad marriage, unless God really steps in and there's some big changes, tends to get worse at a time like this. Yes. Uh, man, I'm blessed. I'm just, I got to spend a little more time with Nancy. Uh, but she's an accountant and uh, loves her job. And so she still works, continues to work. Uh, you know, I'm working, of course, at the church. And uh, um, so it feels like Groundhog Day, except for unlike the movie, Every day doesn't get better and better. It's just Groundhog Day. <laughs> so take us through, uh, for those who don't know you, um, take us through the founding of your church and uh, and that that story a little bit, and then and then where it is now, and then sure, a little, a little sure. your, your wisdom. Well, out there. long ago, far away in another galaxy, uh, in 1980, uh, Nance oh. and I moved down to San Diego. I was 28; she was 24. We, of course, had all the answers to everything. We we're ready to turn the world upside down. Yeah. Uh, I did not found North Coast Church. Uh, a guy named Mike Wilkins had started it and grown it from uh, zero up to uh, really well over 100 adults at one point. By the time I came, I think my first Sunday, there were 70 adults. And because you're such a young pastor, a million rugrats, so like 128. Uh, what happened is we quickly grew adults and kids to about 150, say maybe 95 adults uh, uh, are, uh, are there at that point. And uh, as, as, as we uh, did that, at the end of three years, we had grown by one person. Mm. So <laughs> it wasn't exactly uh, what I uh, had, uh, had hoped for and figured on. Uh, but that's just kind of the way, way it was. So it was kind of a rough start. And forgive me for moving around there. I had my screen captured by somebody trying to call me. Oh, all good. It's like, ah, everything disappeared. You know what? On this uh, podcast, it doesn't matter. I, wa I, I was interviewing Carrie the other day. I walked off the, the screen for uh, like a full <laughs> minute. And he's like, in, in five years of interviewing people, I've never walked off the screen. I'm like, dude, you run things the way you do. I, I don't care about these things. Like, what do you That's why we all love you, Mark. You're one of a kind. Yeah, yeah. So, all good. Uh, yeah. So but anyway, so it didn't grow. Uh, wasn't able to add a staff member till year five. Right. Finally hit uh, that 150, 180 adult type of uh, range. 
Uh, and then the thing just took off. And uh, pre-COVID, we were running about 13,000 actually physically showing up at our uh, local campuses. So far beyond anything I ever imagined yeah. uh, back then. You know, I thought I would take over the world with the arrogance of youth. But in my mind, that would be like, we're going to be 1,000 or 2,000 people. Watch where out. Did you, where did you move from? Uh, up in L.A. Okay. Uh, yeah, and, and 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 part of the Nancy and I still call those first three years the dark years. When you grow by one, we actually grew by a hundred, and one, and lost about a hundred. Right. Uh, so uh, it was a very humbling experience where I learned to take care of the people you have, not use them to reach the people you want to reach. So yeah, um, good. There was a lot of changes that had to take place in my heart to learn to be a real shepherd before God could trust you with people. Yeah. So the first I'd ever heard of you was uh, I was a young pastor and um, it was probably the mid 2000s, early 2000s maybe. And I heard the name Larry Osborne in regard to the innovation of, I don't think it was called multi-site at that point. Uh, I don't know that that had totally been- Video venues at that point. Yeah. yeah. So video venues was the thing that you were doing one camp. So tell us what that idea is and how you kind of came up with it. Well, uh, what happened is I had actually had some anxiety attacks in my early 40s. And the people who know me well, it's like, you're the last person you'd think would get them. And all that meant is I have the ability to stuff stuff and look probably calmer than I, I was. Uh, and so my, my board said, you can't add any more services. We already had two Sunday nights, two Sunday mornings. Uh, we were running around 3,000 people uh, with a sanctuary that's seated 500. And of course, multi-site wasn't a thing then. And so at that point, uh, I was just asking the Lord to help me figure out how to have uh, an overflow room that's not a punishment for being late, but maybe actually a siphon, a, a reward. Right. Uh, and uh, I had the aha that if we changed everything about it, we might be able to make it into a room that people went to first instead of went to last. Uh, because we were turning our crowd around so quickly, so small, so tight in this industrial park we were in, uh, we had no coffee, no refreshments, really nothing like that. It's get out of here, the next crowd's coming. So I had this idea of let's have Starbucks coffee. Back then it wasn't ubiquitous and everywhere. So having a Cambro of it, not foo-foo drinks, just a Cambro was a, like, wow. And then we would have Danishes as well. Uh, cut them in half. God forbid anybody takes a whole one. You know how that is at <laughs> Uh, but uh, we would do that. We'd have a little unplugged music in this smaller room, seat about 90 or whatever, and we'd have the message on the screen, and I would film both Saturday night services. I would say today instead of tonight, the next day wear the same shirt and jeans like I was wearing anyway, uh, and no one would know that it's uh, uh, the best of the two because Murphy lives in the live feed. Part of our thing was stay away from live. Well, about two or three weeks into it, I realized, oh my gosh, we've opened Pandora's uh, box. I came home and said, Nance, we just changed the way megachurch is going to be done. And it was because a little blue-haired lady I saw in the plaza walk out of the room, because I thought it'd be for all the young, kind of a Christian sports bar for the 30 and younger. Uh, but it was a cross-section of our entire church. And I, 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 I'll call her... Uh, well, I'll just call her lady with blue hair. But uh, I said, what were you doing there? And she says, oh, pastor, I love it. The music's not as loud and I could see you better. And I just went, uh-oh. And within about two years, every, you know, you could just name every church that's, that's massive uh, was coming back then. They had a thing called a camcorder. Uh, and you could tell many of those pastors kind of wore a suit and we were Southern California, you know, flip-flops and jeans. So, and the camcorder gave it away. Right. And so you can just name a who's who. And, and what happened actually is, is as I realized how well this could work, we quickly grew. Uh, the first year we uh, added 500 adults watching this thing. A year later, it was a new 1,500. A year later, it was 3,200 new adults. Just as we added the room of new rooms in this warehouse environment we were in. Yeah, and you would do different, talk about the different worship styles that you did. Well, that's what hit me as I realized I could expand our demographic because your worship style and ambiance always limits who you can reach, the gospel. Right. And most any preacher can preach a wider audience if he's authentic uh, than what the room uh, says and eliminates. 
So yeah. uh, we, we added a thing called Video Cafe with the coffee and the food. Then I thought, well, what about traditions? Have Sing hymns. Uh, we don't sing them in our, in, in our services, but we could have, and boom, that room filled up. Then I thought, uh, uh, what about edgy? Uh, and so we created something called the Edge, uh, and then we a uh, country gospel. We have uh, uh, all kinds of different subgroups, uh, all of which we were better able to reach. And we didn't have to change the message to reach any of them. From traditions to the Edge to country, we just had to change the ambiance and the music, and they felt like it was theirs. So let's jump into the critique that you faced then, um, <laughs> as a guy who tries to read widely the different views on lots of things. Uh, of course, you at that time, you're on the front of Outreach magazine, uh, you know, and uh, you you were being talked about as an innovator. But on the other side, of course, probably as a compromiser, um, a seeker sensitive guy, a guy who, you know, you'll just do whatever. You know, so talk about how you lived with the tension. I know you're a Bible guy. Uh, it's, just talk to us about how you process that. Yeah, it, that, that was really weird for me because, as you said, I'm a Bible guy. I got a Bible verse for everything, unapologetically, even if it's out of context. That's just how I, I roll. <laughs> and it usually is, folks. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> so I was just kind of shocked. And as I stepped back, I realized, well, you know what? What they call seeker-sensitive is seeker-targeted, and no, we weren't. Uh, and I think in the body of Christ, there's room for seeker-targeted, but just the assumption that we did things to adapt to reach more people that we were selling out was really a pharisaical uh, mindset, you know? In right. fact, my book, Accidental Pharisees, later on came out of that kind of realization that no one wants to be a Pharisee. They think they're defending truth, but all they are is raising the bar to make it harder to come in. Right. Paul said all, all things to all people. Uh, and so to change the music and reach people. And then the other piece is, um, Everybody's a consumer. I think that's one of the most uh, just not thought through shots that people take at churches. And uh, I, I proved it one day. I had a favorite professor that I would continue to meet with afterward. And I just love this guy. Brilliant. He could convince you the mood was made out of cheese, even when you knew it wasn't. But he was also gracious. So what a, what a wonderful, beautiful combination for a person to have. Uh, and he didn't like big churches. So we're having lunch one day and I said, I, I got knew him well enough. I could call him Bob, which was his name. And I just said, Bob, we have a zero marketing and uh, uh, a budget. We don't advertise or market at all. It's all word of mouth. The guy who put up the room, no room in the inside. It's not the hero of the story. Uh, I need to be like Jesus when he thought it was R and R went to the other side of the lake and there was a crowd that followed him. Sheep without a shepherd. We got to find a way. And if this consumerism is so bad, then why don't you let me pick the church that you and your family go to as long as it's Bible-believing and Jesus-honoring for the next three years? We said, well, of course I won't let you do that. And I said, well, then you're a consumer. You just don't like Walmart. You don't like little niche, you know, mom-and-pop places. But right. you're, you're absolutely – so anybody who makes a decision in a non-parish model is yeah. a consumer. Right. And so you're, you're taking that spirit and saying there's a contextualization that needs to happen. Who cares? Methods can change. Ministry adapts, but the message stays the same. Yeah, because the irony is there wasn't one bit of difference in our message to the edge, to traditions, to country gospel, right. to uh, the laid-back video cafe. So right. if the message doesn't change, I'm always thinking, how in the world is that yeah, called compromise? Uh, I'm still listening. Even like the music yeah. around it. So this is your book, Accidental Pharisees. Uh -huh. I wanted to bring it up because it's a great message for the regular joke. So, so forget about the leader now. Who cares about them? Uh, regular Joe Christian watching this, listening to this, you wrote this book, Accidental Pharisees, Avoiding Pride, Exclusivity, and the Other Dangers of Overzealous Faith. Give us like give us the elevator. I love this book. It's one of my favorite books you've written. It, it feeds my soul. It helps my preaching. For the regular Joe Christian, what is this about? Well, it's, it's about the fact that our zeal to protect the Lord uh, will cause us sometimes to want to keep the riffraff out, uh, right. forgetting that he came to die for his enemies. And most of us in our journey uh, are qualified to be described as riffraff ourselves. Uh, and 
And so I, that the Pharisees of old were accidentally Pharisees. Mm -hmm. uh, everybody, uh, you know, cause that's a bad word to us now, but it was a great word then. Yeah. Uh, no one knew the word better. No one was more zealous to make sure they didn't cross the line. I mean, that's why their extra rules came. They weren't trying to help out God. They were trying to help out themselves because they knew their sin nature. Uh, and the next thing you knew, it became a source of pride and exclusivity. Uh, the exact opposite of what Jesus came to do. Uh, and you talk uh, about one of the illustrations I love in this book is you talk about the idea that like, you know, Joseph of Arimathea was rich and a disciple, <clears throat> uh, you know, in our culture, rich, you know, rich people get slammed because there's no way they could be legit disciples. Uh, you talk about the idea of like, we set this bar and to not confuse discipleship with leadership, I think is the distinction you make. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and you, we set this bar of like, here's what a disciple is. And the regular Joe never lives up to it because it's like this, you know, high bar of you got to, you know, sell all your stuff, move to uh, the village of some poor country or else you're not a true disciple of Jesus. And you talk about your mom and how she like, you don't know whether ever she's ever actually got through the entire Bible and, and yet she's the best Christian, you know, you know, talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Well, what happens is, as you said, we've confused discipleship and leadership. Uh, they're the two rails that the body of Christ and a local church runs on. Uh, if you don't have uh, discipleship, uh, you have uh, no salt and light. You don't have leadership pipeline. You have no future locally and universal. Uh, but what happens is we've turned them into a monorail. And uh, the train was never meant to run on a monorail, so it falls over. When it falls over one side, you get arrogant leaders who are down on everybody else who doesn't qualify and doesn't meet their standards. When it falls out on the other side, you get despairing Christians who think the only way to honor Jesus is to somehow get into full-time vocational ministry. Right. Uh, anybody who's gone to Bible school or seminary seen that. There's people in your class who go, you can't lead your way out of a paper bag. What are you doing here? Well, you've bought the myth and the seminary is taking your money or Bible school uh, that the most committed Christian is the one who spends the most hours uh, on vocational ministry type stuff. And uh, the, the Bible uses the word disciple uh, very differently. Like if a church has a discipleship ministry today, usually the job of that discipleship pastor is to find Christians and make them better Christians. Right. But when Jesus said, go out into all the world and make disciples, he didn't find say find Christians and make them better Christians. You find, find people who don't meet, know me from a loaf of bread, introduce them to me, and never let up until you've taught them to obey everything I've taught you. That's what discipleship is. Yeah. And so you mentioned Joseph of Arimathea. He's kind of a key uh, character in Accidental Pharisees because uh, he would not measure up in most of our definitions of a disciple today, but he's called twice a disciple. He's such an important person. All four gospels tell his story as a hero. And uh, yet as a member of the Sanhedrin, a prominent member, we're told, he laid low when Jesus was spit on and uh, uh, turned over as a blasphemer to be killed. Every, you know, the Bible says uh, it basically felt like a unanimous decision. It felt good to the whole. Well, right. this prominent guy says nothing. Why? John tells us. John says he was a, uh, a disciple, but a secret one because he feared his fellow Jewish leaders, but he'd lose. And so we look at somebody today and say, well, you're not even a Christian. And I go, well, that's weird, because the Bible says he was a disciple. Now, granted, a sucky one, like at the very back of the line. But the weird thing is, in the biblical viewpoint, verse ours, where we keep raising the bar and you're not qualified until, yeah. uh, at this point, as Luke says, he boldly steps forward to identify with a crucified criminal in a Roman culture to take his body and have it buried in his tomb. That's gutsy, where all the guys we put forward as examples of what discipleship is, leaving everything, <laughs> they'd left Jesus as well. They'd run to the hills. Right. Uh, even John the Baptist's uh, followers, disciples, came back for his, his body after he was beheaded. But these guys ran. So, so Talk um, about grace in the church. Yeah. Then. Like, we have people who, what has your experience been leading a church of 13,000 people who are all a disaster, different levels, how you really make sure that, hey, this is actually, uh, you're, you're not a perfect person, and yet you're part of this. 
Well, I think part of it is making the distinction between the first Corinthians chapter five, high-handed sin that's continued in, uh, and the and the struggle and lack of full commitment and uh, that is part of the discipleship journey. Right. Uh, and I think we put those things together. In fact, uh, we'll have secret sins. Every now and then, some of the most harsh pharisaical people I've known uh, get exposed with this huge secret sin in their life. Right. Because they tend to evaluate not the fruit of the Spirit, uh, uh, not the love of 1 Corinthians 13 as the fruit of walking with Jesus. They see it as type A personality. Right. So I like to call it, they judge the watering schedule to see whether you measure up, not the fruit on the tree. Uh, and we've all known some people who come off, in fact, some famous Christians, and you're in the green room with them, and you wish you never had been, because from that point on, you can't stand them. Give, uh, give, give us a list of those uh, people. There. <laughs> what is that name? Mark Clark. That's, oh, okay. uh, oh, definitely. I'm on that list. <laughs> um, all right. So let's, uh, let's shift gears here for a minute. Um, you give this great talk on uh, We're Not in Kansas Anymore, uh, and it speaks to the shifts in culture that have taken place and what we need to do about it in regard to, you know, still reaching the culture that we live in. Give us, give us the five, six-minute version of sure. that talk. Well, part of it is, is we tend to gripe about the culture God put us in instead of counted a privilege that he put us in this tough place. He trusted us. He's empowered us through the Spirit. Uh, I don't want to be the person who wrings my hands about the things I'm going to mention, which is how they're usually voiced. I want to go, these are things I need to be aware of, and uh, the gates of hell cannot prevail. Let's go. Uh, but let's be aware of these things. Right. And I think one of the first ones uh, that I always talk about is, is we live in a highly segmented tribal culture. And uh, we always have had echo chambers, but the echo chambers were not as obvious as now because they used to be regional. Uh, you know, for instance, down here in the States versus Canada, there's, there's significant differences in worldview that neither of us would really understand. And still, I start hanging out with Canadian friends or you start hanging out with people from the States and you go, oh, that's interesting. Uh, here in the States, it was always regional. Uh, somebody who was very successful as a leader or pastor in the South would bomb when they went to New York City, uh, and West wouldn't make it on the on, on the West Coast, uh, and they'd come and be surprised because their whole world was this echo chamber of all these different regional areas. Right. Uh, and then we had a media, a monolithic media for a short time with AM radio when that first came out, and television when it only had three uh, networks. And everybody kind of experienced the same things. Uh, back to my, uh, my dad and mom's uh, era of uh, I Love Lucy being a show that, you know, 74% of people watched it when it was rated number one households. Right. Um, by the time uh, uh, Cosby Show was number one, it was 50. By the time it was Seinfeld, 34%. By the time it was NCSI, number one, it was 17%. Or in other words, 83% never seen it. Hmm. Uh, and what's happened is choice has come on. It came on with FM radio long ago, then it came with cable television, then it came with our iPods, then it came with Pandora. And it, this is not gonna change, though we hate the echo chambers and the fact we don't know how to communicate with our neighbor, because now our tribes are by choice, not by geography. Uh, none of us are willing to give up our choices. I don't wanna go back to three networks uh, and I've got to watch this show live or I can't. I love time, you know, shifting right. and all that, which is the second one. We're living in a culture where everybody time shifts everything. My 93-year-old dad and, and in a month to be 90-year-old mom, by the grace of God, are very healthy, driving and, you know, all the normal stuff. But mm. the thing at that age, they time shift every show they watch. Mm. This is not a millennial thing. This is a cultural thing. Right. And, and, and the church is still acting like, well, everybody is speaking the same language. One of the implications of this is we've got to work with one another more than we ever did before. Because when you had an echo chamber that was wide, you could reach all kinds of people in your city. But when the echo chambers are so small that even two kids raised in the house might not know each other's music uh, and, and, and media interest. Yeah. Well, at that point, we better be working together like we never have before. 
as, as, as different franchises. And with time shifting, uh, when I first started ministry, the only place you could ever hear an organ was in an occasional church. Uh, now, the only place that things, things have to be live or they're not real is the local church. Mm-hmm. But people were reaching and going, well, what do you mean I can't time shift this? Uh, well, I, and- I, I've sat, on, I've sat on, um, on stages and talked about our video methodology and been called out in front of hundreds of people by other leaders who say, you know, reaching people via video is wrong. And now, you know, those same people- COVID are- changed all of their minds, didn't it? Yeah, right? <laughs> So it's like, we're still, but my point is we're still, in my view, if we're still having this conversation, we're dinosaurs. The idea that you couldn't message and, 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 and disciple and reach people through video and the church is still, having, the church is at least 10 or 20 years usually behind trends, wouldn't you say? Yes. Well, here's one of the ironies and I'll, I'll, I'll name the name. It was Brian McLaren. Uh, an article in Christianity Today or Leader, I forget where it was, uh, but there were others as well, the same thing. Uh, as academics, they would write articles on the sellout of video venues and the inability to, and, and multi-site, the inability to one-on-one touch the people you're reaching. And the irony is they're writing it on a paper to people they will never see and never know and think right. that's a legit way uh, to uh, frame their worldview and disciple them, and it's 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 not so. Yeah. Uh, any leader has always only had a small circle of people that they really know well, uh, and everybody else you're on a stage for. I mean, this happens at five, six hundred people. You don't know the real stories. And the other thing I think people misunderstand maybe is what because because obviously the argument would be well. You know, I'm Brian McLaren. I'm not a pastor. I'm not trying to do the same thing Larry Osborne's trying to do. And I'm critiquing well, he was then. church and ecclesiology. He was then. Uh, but writing books, of course, is trying to accomplish something different than being a church, you know, ecclesiologically or whatever. But the one thing I think that people misunderstand is what Larry Osborne and myself and others, what we think uh, this... 45 minute sermon is actually accomplishing. We, we, we I, I think people probably put, think that we think it is, it's accomplishing more than it is. We're not saying this is the, the full gambit of discipleship. And this is now our ecclesiological strategy. This is the 40 minute sermon that like, and the pie chart of everything we're doing means this much in regard to what a church is trying to do. And if you engage it on video or you're, further away than 200 feet from the stage you're looking at it magnified on video anyway we're just saying this is just the sermon this isn't the be all end all of all christianity and i think people misunderstand that yeah it's it's the catalyst uh that and and that's all it is that's why early on at 200 we made the decision at north coast church that the uh we're going to judge the health of our church by our small groups percentage in small groups, not by the numbers who come on a weekend. Right. Because I, I can be a catalyst on a weekend. Chris Brown can be a catalyst on a weekend. Uh, but the fact is the Bible talks about Christianity, not as a theological construct, but as a, a, a community of one another's. Yeah. Uh, part of the debate right now in the COVID thing, oh, we've got to gather because Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, forsake not the gathering. And I go, no, that says, that that was written to house churches. It was not about forsake, not a a bunch of people coming together with hazers, lights, and a great band uh, and a a speaker. It was uh, don't live in isolation. In fact, it starts out by saying, consider how to spur, agitate, provoke, the Greek word means, one another on to love and good deeds. Don't forsake getting together. And we've turned it into... uh, meeting with a group of strangers and low-level acquaintances as if somehow that's going to spur me on. Uh, so I, I love large group gatherings, Mark. Love them because they may come and see evangelism so much easier, yeah. which is how most people, frankly, come to Jesus once you just come and see. So I miss them greatly, and I'm looking yeah. forward to when we can get back to them. But yeah. the church, yeah. otherwise people live in, in highly rural settings. You're telling me they can't be good Christians? Right. 
It's like, so any, anything else from that we're not in Kansas anymore in regard to shifts? Well, the, the, the time shifting means we need to quit building bigger and bigger buildings, just as uh, uh, the, the tribal means we need to work together. Your, your, your church is going to reach next door across the street people you will never reach. Time shifting means we need to add more services, not build bigger buildings, uh, which bigger buildings is for the convenience of the staff and the ego of the band and the speaker. Uh, you know, there's a huge loss of uh, biblical literacy. I think we need to be aware of well, That's where accidental Pharisees think everybody should know the Bible. But both in Canada and the United States, they've realized that all the great literature wasn't necessarily written by dead white guys. Right. Uh, and we've broadened uh, the educational system. And what that means is the, the emphasis on Christianity by non-Christians in uh, analogies and metaphors, that's not a part of our culture anymore. So you could have written a book in the past, and people did, East of Eden, and people knew what that meant. Uh, nowadays, I say the fall, there's nobody in my church that thinks of Genesis because their educational system didn't give them any of that. Sure. Uh, they think of a season that, we, by the way, we don't really have here in San Diego, but we, we pretend. Okay. Um, and so biblical literacy means we need to go back with a little more of the Bible for me yeah. uh, than we assume. Otherwise, we're just going to have a small little slice of brainiacs, brains on a stick, who love, you know, and already know this stuff that we're teaching. Everybody else is going to act like they know what we're talking about. They have no idea. Right. So... You've been doing this. Give us some practical advice. Uh, you've been doing ministry for 46 years or so, married for 43 to the wonderful Nancy. Uh, give us some tips on how you don't flame out, burn out, fumble out, whatever terms you want to use, both from ministry but life in general. Well, I, I think one of them is you've got to live your theology and live your priorities. Yeah. And frankly, I think a lot of people don't really live their theology. Uh, they, their theology is full of grace, but their relationships are not full of grace. Uh, their theology is it's all of the Lord. This is not me, but they work as if it's all me. Uh, I love Proverbs. I think it's 21, 30, and 31 says, there's no wisdom, no counsel against the Lord. The horse is prepared for battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. And uh, the more we take upon ourselves a sense of we're valuable when we succeed and not valuable when we don't, Jesus loved me as much, and I was as pleasing to him when we grew by one person over three years than the rapid growth that we had since. That's my theology. That's what I'd say. I think for a lot of us, it's not inside of us. So I was lucky to grow up in a home where that was a value, have a no father wound, a dad that helped that, a mentor that poured it in. You have nothing to prove and no one to impress. And if that's true, uh, it makes it easier to do your best and take a nap. It makes it easier to go, well, if these people get at me because I'm fulfilling my calling by being a good dad and a good husband instead of showing up at their 50th anniversary, that's their problem, not mine. Mm -hmm. uh, God called me to just teach the Bible and disciple people. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to do the best I can, but I'm not going to be the mayor of the city. And I'm not going to be you know, the, the decoration on every event that, that I was there. Uh, and now that I'm on the backside of not being the lead pastor of North Coast, I'm experiencing everything I had. Uh, because I realized how quickly it's like, oh, yeah, didn't you kind of help start this thing? Uh, it's, it's like all this legacy we work for, it, it really doesn't matter. Yeah, uh, I've got three kids who love Jesus, love the local church, are in the marketplace, secular marketplace, serving God for free uh, when they do on the weekend. Uh, a, a wife that feels greatly loved. Why would I change that for two or three thousand more people? That's just nuts. Right. Uh, do the best you can. Take a nap. It's his. You could yeah. be Samson and everything looks great for 18 years and you're rotten on the inside, or you could be Aiken losing an AI, and everybody wonders what wrong, what's wrong with you, and it's not Aiken. You could be Joshua losing an AI. Everybody wonders what's wrong with you as a leader, and it's not you, it's Aiken. Right. Just relax. <laughs> you, uh, you model that well. Uh, I remember when our team came down and met with you, there was, there was a sense about you that you didn't take yourself too serious, and I think that's very freeing for people. It's something that I try to 
you know, obviously this can be a serious business that we do oh, and it's yeah. a heavy, hard business. But if you don't take yourself too serious in the sense of, you know, don't, don't come to Jesus because of me, uh, be, you know, come to Jesus because of him. I'm going to fail you. I'm going to mess up. I'm not going to be a great leader. I'm going to say the wrong thing at your bedside. I'm going to, you know, not be able to be there for your wedding or whatever. Don't make, and I've, I've learned that from you about building a thing. You know, there's a certain piece of it that's going to be about you in the sense of you're a communicator, sure. you're going to be the face of a thing, but making sure you don't wear that, you know, too much because, you know, you'll probably have a short lifespan in ministry if you, if you become that. Yeah, there's, there's no reason to take upon yourselves the things you know are his responsibility. Right. And that's why I love that analogy of preparing the horse for battle. I don't want to stand before the Lord and find out, well, you didn't even put the weapon on. You forgot the saddle. Like, what were you doing? Well, you know, no, I'm going to do the best I can. But by the way, here's another phrase I love to teach people. The best you can under the circumstances. Because there'll never be a day that I studied as much as I should the subject before I wrote the book. There's never a sermon I preached I couldn't done a little more. There's never that will never happen. But under the circumstances, I'm sorry my energy's gone. Uh, under the circumstances, I'm sorry my kids in little league. I need to go coach that that team, uh, so that I can actually be reaching and touching non Christians and other parents or the other kids and yeah. and be a, a dad who's not saying someday but saying today. Mm -hmm. um, and what that meant is when we had two Saturday night services, Mark. I preached some pretty sucky sermons on Saturday night after I'd been in the sun too much, but I'd fulfilled my calling and I did the best I could under the circumstances. And I laid on bed, my head on the pillow in bed and went to sleep. Love that image. Uh, on that note, talk about, I don't know if you remember this, uh, you probably will because you shared it with me, something your, uh, you and your brother and your sister got up at your parents' <laughs> parents wedding anniversary or something and you talked about the lifeboat or whatever give, give us that analogy i think it's brilliant for marriage yeah yeah and it's one i've uh tried to model again because i think security comes out of the strength of a marriage uh and like the marriage is it's not the center of our spiritual life singleness is a great and high calling but it is to a culture uh, and so it was my folks 50th anniversary being the oldest i spoke first and one of the things I said is, we love the way you have a love relationship for each other. You're just deeply devoted to one another. And in fact, I always felt like if we were out on the lake and there were only two lifeboats and the, uh, I mean, life jackets, and uh, we sprung a leak, that you'd give each other the life jackets and say, sorry, love you, but... And uh, my sister got up, brother next, and said similar, my sister similar, and my mom starts to cry because she's feeling like, what a crap mom I am. And uh, all of us were like, no, you don't understand. That is the greatest gift you could have ever given us. Mm -hmm. The security of a mom and dad. As the scriptures say in Ephesians, uh, the model of a marriage is a model of the church of Christ's love to the church. Uh, I, I, I never had to lay in bed and wonder if they had a little disagreement. Oh, is my world going to fall apart? Uh, I never had to worry whether a commitment for better or worse was, well, not that worse. Right. Uh, and that carried over to my faith. Uh, and it deeply carried over to all three of us in our sense of security. We're all very secure in our own skin. Yeah. Uh, and I believe right. it's the gift of a no father wound and a gift of a man who showed us how to love a woman. And all three of us are trying to repeat that back. Yeah, that's great. So talk to us a little bit about, uh, how you, you know, you've raised three kids on your own that love Jesus. So how do we, how do we do that? Well, First of all, you don't take too much credit if you're blessed with it. Because uh, remember, in the Garden of Eden, you have uh, no sin nature, perfect environment, call God the parent, perfect parent, and you have rebellion. Right. So I think those of us that are fortunate uh, sometimes can be a little arrogant. When right. It's kind of like you see a turtle on the post, you know it didn't get there alone. No, uh, no idea what that that analogy just meant. I mean, uh, it's up I'm there looking over everybody. Yeah. Somehow uh, somebody put it there. And and so I want to say that at the beginning, but but part of it is, is uh, I, I believe uh, that there's no such thing as quality time. There's only quantity time and quality flows out of it serendipitously when least expected. Uh, so we were around. Uh, uh, 
another thing was the gift of of loving their mom and mom loving their dad. You know, a lot of a lot of husbands uh, have a, a wife and a lover and until they have kids, and now they've got just another mother. Uh, so I think that priority we gave there. Um, little things um, we allowed our kids to be uh, age appropriate spiritual. You know, we weren't always like trying to be hyper spiritual. In fact, there's a stage where kids are embarrassed by any zeal. Uh, down here in the States, I'm a USC football fan, which is one of the bigger colleges. And uh, had I had a horn where when you honk it, it played the USC fight song and I had USC bumper stickers all over. And every time I turned, I talked to people about USC football. My kids would have gone to UCLA, the arch rival. Like, you know, we just made sure we didn't embarrass our kids with our faith. Right. And, and, and we lived in natural faith. We were much more worried, two, two key things, I think. We were much more worried about the fruit than the watering schedule. Mm-hmm. I didn't care how often they read their Bible. I cared how biblically they lived. Mm-hmm. That was much more uh, important. And then maybe the most important thing is we realized we were raising a 30-year-old, not an 18-year-old going off to university or a 21-year-old. And I think for a lot of people, that's the finish line. And when your finish line is getting them into the right university or your finish line is, okay, they're an adult on their own, uh, you, you have a lot of angst about stuff that doesn't matter when you're 30. Nobody asked a 30-year-old whether they were valedictorian, they got the highest grades they could have got. Nobody asked what their GPA was. Uh, all these parents that are uh, over pushing athletics, no, nobody asked my kids, you know, what sports they played, how good they were, how many championships the team won. Right. Um, those aren't 30-year-old questions. So that 30-year finish line was a big deal. Yeah, that's great. I love that. Well, the, the thing it does is it gives, you know, uh, parents that are in the fight right now uh, hope. Um, what would you say – uh, in closing, maybe on this point, uh, to parents who are facing the, the, the present world. I mean, it's a world you didn't raise your kids in the world of the internet, uh, the, the struggles, the tensions that parents are facing to try to raise their kids, like on that point about raising, trying to raise a 30-year-old, having a 30-year-old in your mind as you're raising these kids. The present tensions and struggles that parents are facing around the stuff going on now any advice for us as we try to do that well? Yeah, your children are more likely to become who you are than what you said. Right. Uh, and so if you live it, they will probably become it. And character can overcome any environment. Mm-hmm. So we often act like it's the environment's going to make our kids uh, uh, go crazy. So we put them in a bubble. And of course, then the moment they get out of the bubble, they go, oh, everything's not as evil as I thought. Oh, that's really good, whatever. And they kick the traces. So I think learning to live it and, and let's, let's not over idealize the past or let's not uh, over catastrophize the present. Cause actually my parents were told this is the hardest time ever to raise children. Uh, look at uh, pornography, just going crazy everywhere. Uh, uh, look at uh, the free love movement. Look at the drug movement. Uh, look at, I mean, so, uh, at that point, uh, as far as conflict, uh, when I was a, a young teenager, uh, pretty much every major city across the United States was burning uh, in, in riots that were burning down the cities. Uh, and uh, every political leader was being sh- uh, killed or shot, uh, from Malcolm X to uh, you know, Martin Luther King to I mean, John Kennedy. Uh, so what happens is now we look back at that, and that's just history. Oh, that's interesting. I wonder what that was like. And we look at social media or we look at the uproar now or what we're going through and go, oh, how horrible. Right. Well, I yeah, and I talk to people about that in regard to this kind of apocalyptic uh, feeling that people have. It's, you know, new Christians, let's say, who they're like, this is the end of the world because coronavirus and this and that. And I'm like, you know, one of the things that helps you, and I'm not saying it's not, I'm just saying uh, having a historical perspective on I'm sure the people, like you said, in the 60s, um, I'm sure people in World War II, I'm sure people in the Spanish flu, I'm sure people in the 1500s, everybody's had stuff uh, go down and it actually pales in comparison to that. Yeah. And so, Having a historical perspective, <clears throat> but 
it's almost like we don't we don't have that. Like I went, even when I just became a Christian in the in the late nineties, um, there was all these videos that this these people would show me about you know the the millennium turnover when it turns to two thousand all the planes are going to crash and it's the end of the world. And you got to make sure you don't take the mark of the beast and the mark of the beast is getting the internet because the word computer and Roman numerals mean six, six, six. And now everyone's doing the same thing with all this stuff. And for many of us, and I say us as a 40 year old who saw the tail end of it when I first became a Christian, but I bet for you, you've been through all these phases of Christian fanaticism. And it must be almost laughable to think, oh, guys, this is literally the eighth cycle I've been through with this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes people go, Larry, how, how have you been so good at seeing the future? And I go, well, sometimes it's because I already saw the movie. You know, right. once you've seen three Hallmark movies, you know, they're going to fall in love and when and where and the kiss will be at the end. And uh, sometimes life is, is uh, that way. Uh, I've also always just had a propensity to go back, not just to my life history, but history. Mm-hmm. That's where Joseph of Arimathea jumped out at me. I love to just read and read a Bible text and go, huh, what was it really like? And then I suddenly realized people say they want a New Testament church. Have you read the New Testament? Like that church was racist, didn't want any Gentiles in it, totally disobedient to the Great Commission until Acts 8 when a persecution is sent by the I mean, just go on and on. Are you kidding me? Paul planted terrible churches. That's why he had to write all those letters. Holy Spirit's just killing people who don't give enough. Yeah, yeah. I'm just sitting there thinking, you don't really know what it uh, was like. I mean, again, the Spanish flu. I mean, we've had a blip compared to that. Uh, the plagues wiping out Europe. Uh, World War II. Uh, have you ever seen those death numbers? Uh, and, and it's just crazy compared to now. Because the truth right. is, we have less world hunger and less war and pestilence than we've ever had in human history. And yet we think it's the worst time ever. Oh, crime, crime's dropping, education's rising. We got more, I mean, it's, the stats are crazy. And yeah. uh, But yeah. it's a fallen world and we keep thinking right. sinfully. Again, we don't live our theology. Yeah. That, well, if things were right, life would be good. Life will never be good until Jesus returns. Yeah, 100%. Well, on that note, sir, thank you for spending some time with us. And hopefully uh, you guys are well down there and this thing can end soon and we can all get get back down and hang out with you and Nancy. So thanks for your time. Hey, love it.